And most gracious Father, we come to your word today with holy reverence, uh, thanking you for being a God who reveals himself in Scripture, thanking you for being a God who reveals himself at all, thanking you for being a God who loves us so much that you would reveal yourself to us. And so we pray, Lord, that by the power of the Holy Spirit working in us as we study your word, that your spirit and your word would work together to accomplish your purposes in us, of sanctifying us and drawing us closer to yourself through Christ, our mediator, our savior, for his glory. And in his name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles with you, please turn to John chapter 4. We're going to be continuing our study of John chapter 4 today. And since we were just praying for all the parents in here, all the, 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 the mothers who are expecting, and, and praying for the babies who are uh, in the room, in the womb, uh, we, uh, we should remember how important it, uh, it is to remember the significance of a name. I mean, that's one of the greatest joys of parenting, coming up with names for our kids. Uh, if you have children, um, or, or if you've got children in the womb, as, uh, as some of you do, or if you are just looking forward to someday having children, as some of you are, every parent, or every potential parent at least, looks forward to this, to naming their kids, to giving their kids a name that has some kind of significance. For Christina and me, I, I'm pretty sure that the moment we found out that she was pregnant, I, I'm pretty sure that one of my first thoughts was, wow, what, what are we going to name our child? Uh, what are we going to name our baby? We want it to say something. We want it to mean something. We want it to have some kind of significance. And my parents were the same way. They are the same way to this very day. My mom reminds me all the time of why she gave me the name that she gave me. It was because of the meaning of it. And in the Bible, it's actually no different. Uh, in the Bible, it's no different. Names are very significant in Scripture oftentimes. They often say something about the person or at least uh, about the expectation that the parents had for a person. I mean, starting with Cain, who was the first baby ever born, uh, his name means gotten one. And the passage that tells us of his birth and his name records Eve as saying, I have gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. So that's where his name comes from. That's the significance of his name. You fast forward to Abram, whose name meant exalted father. Uh, Abram was renamed Abraham, which meant father of many, which was kind of funny. It's a play on words because he wasn't a father of anyone at the time he was given that name, even though he was in his old age. And that was because his wife Sarah's womb was barren. Uh, he wasn't a father of anybody until they were well, well beyond their childbearing years. And the reason for that, of course, was so that God would get all the glory for fulfilling his promises to Abraham. Go on to Jacob. Jacob's name meant swindler. Uh, but God changed his name to Israel, which meant victory with God. But as, as you're introduced to Jacob, the, the early years of his life, you see the name fits. He's a swindler. But then he wrestles with God. God gives him the name Israel, which means victory with God. We know that Simon, uh, the disciple, was renamed Peter by the Lord Jesus at one point. Peter, or 
Petros, uh, meant rock, and the name that was given to Simon, af- and that was the name that was given to Simon after he had correctly identified Jesus as the Christ. After pronouncing uh, Peter or Simon blessed uh, because his knowledge that Jesus was the Messiah could only have come from the Father, Jesus said to him, I also say to you that you are Peter, here's where he renames him, significance of the name, and upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. In the cases of both Jacob or, or Israel and Simon or Peter, they would sometimes be referred to by their their previous names, the names that they were born with, as a way of showing that they were acting like their old self. They were walking in the flesh. They were acting like the person they were before God changed them. So the Bible doesn't always tell us why God would give people new names, but it does seem reasonable to conclude that it was an indication of that person being a new creation, a new person because of God's work in them. Now, in the biblical canon, the names of people obviously, are, are very, very significant. Uh, it might say something, something about their birth. It might say something about the family they come from. God even sometimes used somebody's name to send a message about who that person is. For example, the name Jesus, Yeshua. What does that mean? It means salvation is of Jehovah, or Jehovah is salvation. But this wasn't the only name that is ascribed to Jesus. Yes, that was his proper name, but the scriptures give us many other names that he was known by as well. Let's start with one of the more obvious and well-known ones, Emmanuel. Emmanuel. This was what the prophet Isaiah said about Jesus hundreds of years before Jesus was born in Isaiah 7.14. He said, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. In Matthew chapter 1 verse 23 tells us what Emmanuel means. It means God with us. That says something about who this child was, who Jesus was. Jesus is also referred to as the Son of God, as the Son of Man, as the Lamb of God, as the Light of the World. Uh, He's called Lord. He's called Savior. He's called King, among many, many other names and titles. And all of these names and titles are given in order to tell us, to reveal to us something about Jesus, about who he is, and about the significance of the work that he came to accomplish But today we come to the conclusion of this conversation that took place between Jesus and this woman in Samaria, this Samaritan woman. We come to this passage in which Jesus refers to himself. He gives himself a title. And in many ways, this is the greatest of any of the names by which he was or is known. He's going to reveal himself in these two verses as the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one of God. And thus the point of this passage is that because Jesus is God incarnate, everyone who will be saved must believe in him alone for salvation. So this evangelistic conversation that Jesus is having with this Samaritan woman started with Jesus asking her for a drink of water, but he went on to tell her that if she knew the gift of God, if she knew who he was, she would be the one asking him 
for a drink of water, and he would have given her living water, and she never would have thirsted again. He was telling her that if she came to him in faith, he would satisfy her deepest needs, her deepest desires, her deepest longings. She would only find a contentment that lasts, that isn't here one minute and gone the next. She would only find that kind of contentment in Jesus Christ. And she had tried, as we've studied this conversation, we've seen that she has tried and tried and tried to evade this conversation completely. But she was then startled to find out that Jesus knew about the sinful lifestyle that she was living. And so her response to that was twofold. First of all, she realized that Jesus was a prophet. And secondly, it appeared at least that she tried to change the conversation topic uh, to talking about where God should be worshipped. Should he be worshipped in Jerusalem or should he be worshipped in Samaria? And Jesus answered that the Jews were correct, that God was to be worshipped in Jerusalem, but he also told her that a time was coming and had come in which people could worship anywhere. That the time was coming when it wouldn't matter where people worshipped, but it would matter how they worshipped. And that is in spirit and in truth. And so at this point, what we have to understand is she's basically down to her last line of defense. Jesus has overcome every single obstacle that she has thrown up, and he's done it with ease. And he's going to do the same thing with her final objection, which is to postpone making a decision. And of course, this applies to us, because if you go and share the gospel with somebody, one of the things that they are likely to do is say, I'll think about it. So let's think about that as we go through this passage today. Here's her final objection and Jesus' response to her objection. We find it in John chapter 4, verses 25 and 26. It says, The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. John adds, He who is called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. So she says that she knows Messiah is coming. How did she know that? How would she know that the Messiah was coming? I mean, she, like all of the Samaritans, had rejected almost the entire canon of the Hebrew Scriptures except for the first five verses. And that included all the prophets of Israel who foretold of the Messiah who was to come. But there were a couple of messianic pro- uh, prophecies in the one text in the Bible, the first five books that the Samaritans held on to. And here's a hint. There's a hint in the text and what she says here that tells us which prophecy specifically she has in mind. She says, he will, speaking of the Messiah, he will declare all things to us. This seems to be a clear reference to Deuteronomy 18.18, which records God saying to Moses, I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. So in other words, he will declare all things to them. So, The Samaritans obviously did have an expectation that there was a Messiah who was coming, but they only expected him to be a prophet of God in the same way that Moses was a prophet of God. In fact, this is not entirely wrong, right? It's not entirely wrong. 
Jesus was a prophet, but he's also more than a prophet. He's our prophet, priest, and king. He's our prophet, priest, and king. Nevertheless, the Samaritan uh, understanding of who the Messiah was and what he would do was actually closer to the truth than the understanding that the Jews had. The idea uh, that, the Jews had, that, the, that the Jews had was that the Messiah would be a king, but they only meant that in an entirely, a purely political sense, not in a spiritual sense. And so what, what did Jesus do whenever the Jews said anything about him being their king? Or if they said anything about desiring for him to be their king, he was very careful to either correct them or to just put a lot of distance between himself and them. He never accepted the title of king from the Jews. But he did accept the title of prophet from this Samaritan woman. So what exactly is her objection here? Remember, she she recognizes that Jesus is a prophet. She's basically saying... You know, Jesus, I'm, I'm sure uh, you've, you've got some things to say that are good and true, but I'm just going to wait to make a decision on what you've told me until Messiah gets here. Then, then he'll tell me what the truth is. So at this point, she, she thinks Jesus might be on to something, but is he as good as Moses? Is, is he that type of prophet? She's willing to wait until Messiah, until this, this prophet in the likeness of Moses The Messiah, whom God had promised, shows up. And Jesus says, I who speak to you am he. In other words, you're you're looking at him, ma'am. You've been talking to him here all along, right? Yes and no. That's kind of what he's saying, but not really. Not, Not exactly. Yes, he's informing the Samaritan woman that he is the Messiah, but he's saying so much more than just that. I mean, it's actually really unfortunate. Things get lost in translation. And it's unfortunate that so much of the punch here, so much of the meaning here gets lost in translation because Jesus is actually saying much, much more than you're looking at him. If, if all we had was the English translation and nothing but the English translation, then yes, uh, we, we could assume that that's what Jesus was saying. But having even a slight understanding of the Greek language, which this was written in originally, gives us an understanding that Jesus is identifying himself, actually, by a very specific, a very significant title. The first clue to note, if you look at your Bibles, the first clue is to note where our Bible reads, I who speak to you am he. You see that word he? If you've got the NASB, it it probably is in italics, the word he. That indicates that it was inserted by the translators for the sake of making it easier to understand. But it tells us that it's not actually found in the Greek text. So he didn't say, I am he. Rather, he said simply, I am. If we wanted to translate this a little bit more literally, maybe word for word, it would say, I who speak to you, I am. And this is a huge deal. We have to understand that this is very significant because it's a claim about who he is, about who Jesus is. 
Yes, he is identifying himself as the Messiah. But above and beyond even that, he's making a connection between his identity and the well-known name that we find for God in the Old Testament, Jehovah. The words I am are more than just a claim. They're, They're a title. We have to understand that. They're a title. The significance of this title goes back to the book of Exodus, which is one of the few portions, by the way, of, of Scripture that the Samaritans uh, had, had accepted. Uh, God had spoken to Moses in this burning bush, and he was sending Moses back with a message and a purpose to redeem his people. But before Moses departed, he asked God, he said, Behold, I am going to the sons of Israel, and I will say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And what did God say? Exodus 3.14. He says, it says, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. I am. This is actually where we get the name Jehovah. It's the letters of God's unpronounceable name, Y-H-V-H, and the vowels from the title Adonai inserted in between the letters. So the name Jehovah literally means I am. Now, when the Greek language became the primary language of the people, the Jews decided to translate the Hebrew Scriptures into Greek. And how do you think they translated God's name, I am? The Greek is ego eimi, ego eimi. And those are the very same words that Jesus uses, that Jesus speaks to refer to himself in this conversation with this woman, responding to her final objection. Ego eimi, I am. Now we also know that when we see the word Lord in capital letters of the Old Testament, it's the translation of Jehovah. So, so he's saying, I am, I am God, I am Lord, I am Jehovah. Do you see how, how significant, how huge it is that Jesus would give this title, would ascribe this title to himself? It's a clear and direct claim to be Jehovah God. It's a direct claim to be God, to be Lord. See, the Jews of Jesus' day... We have to see that that they understood that claim. They understood that whenever Jesus said, I am, that's the claim he was making. They had a perfect understanding of the connection that Jesus was making between himself and God. They just rejected that he deserved that title. That's why they accused him of blasphemy. That's why they plotted and tried to murder him on so many occasions. And when we understand what they understood, when we understand the significance of those words, I am, when we understand that this is arguably the greatest, the most important name that was ever ascribed to Jesus, what do we do with that? What's the woman going to do with that? Because this is the name above all names that we're talking about. The name above all names. I mean, Paul would write in his epistle to the Philippians of Jesus saying this. He said, For this reason also God highly exalted him, Christ that is, and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
It's from Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 to 11. So what is that name above all names? What is the name above all names which, which God bestowed upon Jesus? That name, that title, is the name that every tongue will confess. Lord. Lord. Jehovah, the great and mighty I am. This is the name before which every knee, all creatures in heaven and on earth, will bow. Ultimately, this Samaritan woman needed to be confronted with the reality of who she was speaking with. She needed to be confronted with the reality of the authority of Jesus. It's the same reality that anyone we wish to share the gospel with needs to be confronted by as well. People live their lives however they want. They, they, they pursue whatever makes them happy. They don't care about obedience to God, at least for now. But they won't have that sense of autonomy forever. They can pretend to be Lord of their lives, calling the shots in their lives for now, but one day, every tongue, even theirs, will confess that Jesus is Lord and they will bow before Him. Either they'll do it voluntarily with the saints and the angels in heaven, or they'll do it begrudgingly with the lost and with the demons. But somebody, somebody needs to go out into the world to those who are lost, to those who don't know Christ, to those who don't live like He's Lord, don't know that He's Lord. And they need to tell them who Jesus is and of the salvation that is found only in Him. So this is where it clicked for her. This is where it clicked for the Samaritan woman. This is where, where the lights started to finally come on, where the veil was pulled back for the Samaritan woman. Now we don't know exactly how much uh, she understood, but we can clearly see that she understood. Because she doesn't just sit there, she does, she's not ambivalent about it, she takes off. She takes off, gets out of there as fast as she can, not to get away from Jesus, but to call others out to come and see him. I was watching a video yesterday of a friend of mine in North Carolina who does street preaching, and as he was trying to share the gospel with this guy, he literally ran away. He, he literally just didn't want to hear anything about it. He literally ran. They had a video of it. That's not what the woman is doing. She gets out of there not to get away from Jesus, but to go and tell people they need to know Jesus the way she does. All in all, Jesus uses the words, I am, ego a me. He uses them a total of seven times in John's gospel testimony. On one of these occasions, Jesus said to the Jews, unless you believe that I am... There it is again, ego e me. Unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. John 8, 24. That's what the woman is trying to avoid for those whom she loves. What he meant when he said that to the Jews was that if a person doesn't believe that Jesus is God incarnate, Jehovah in the flesh, that he is Lord, they could not and they would not be saved. And the Samaritan woman seemed to have an understanding of that, an immediate understanding of that, because she has 
a sense of urgency. What will happen to all these people that she knows? What will happen to all these people that she loves? Jesus is just passing through. They need to, they need to come right now and see him. Doesn't everybody, she's thinking, everybody needs to hear about Jesus. Everybody needs to know him. So every time Jesus uses this phrase, this title in reference to himself, it's always a claim to be God in the flesh, to be divine. It's always a claim to be God from God, light from light, true God from true God. He says later in, the, in John's gospel, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the gate. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. Every one of these instances was Jesus identifying himself as Jehovah God incarnate. Now again, we can't be exactly sure of how much the woman understood, how much she, she gathered from what Jesus had said to her. The Samaritan expectation for the Messiah was partially correct, but it wasn't fully correct. I mean, would you refer to someone who was a mere prophet as the Messiah? She, she would have understood that term, uh, Messiah, or, or anointed one, uh, in, in, that's what it means, anointed one. It's the same as the Greek word for Christ. Uh, she understood that. The, the head of, of, of certain individuals who hold or who held a, a particular office would sometimes be anointed with oil. They would have an anointing ceremony. Uh, there were ceremonies that the prophets of the Old Testament uh, occasionally did to be designated as one who was sent as a prophet. For example, Elijah uh, anointed the head of Elisha with oil. But prophets weren't the only ones who would sometimes be anointed. Uh, priests would also have their heads anointed with oil as they were installed into their priestly position. In Exodus 28, verses 40 and 41, we read, we read this. It says, for Aaron's sons, you shall make tunics, and you shall also make sashes for them, and you shall make caps for them for glory and for beauty. You shall put them on Aaron, your brother, and on his sons with him. You shall anoint them and ordain them and consecrate them that they may serve me as priests. So finally, we've seen that, that prophets and priests would be anointed Finally, we see that kings would also occasionally have their heads anointed with oil to signify that they were to fill the position of king. We read of David's anointing by Samuel in 1 Samuel. It says, Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him, anointed David, in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. So all three of these positions, prophet, priest, and king, involved a special ceremonial anointing. Now, in first century Israel and Samaria, the term Messiah or Christ had a much more specific meaning because people did have the understanding that God was going to send a single anointed one to deliver God's people, an individual of whom all the previous prophets, priests, and kings only foreshadowed at best. The Samaritans did have the correct understanding that this Messiah would be a prophet who would tell them all things, but he was also a priest who would offer up the perfect once and for all sacrifice on behalf of his people. And he was also a king who would reign forever from the throne of David. 
the Messiah would be all these things, prophet, priest, and king. And that's precisely what Jesus was claiming about himself when he spoke the words, ego eimi, I am. Now, if we consider this whole conversation in context, we understand that there is no way to the Father but through Jesus Christ, and we understand why. We understand why there is no way to be reconciled to God apart from faith in Jesus. It's because Jesus is Jehovah. Jesus is God himself, the great I am himself. And because he is, only he can fully and truly reveal God. And thus, if we want to come to God, how can we do it? How else can we do it? There's no other way. In Christ alone, in Christ alone, we are drawn near to God, for he alone is our peace. He's our prophet who speaks all things. He's our priest who offers the perfect sacrifice himself. And he's our king who lives and reigns forever. And this is exactly why Jesus told the woman that if she was going to worship God, if anyone is going to worship God, it must be in spirit and it must be in truth because it must be in Christ. See, throughout the Old Testament, one of the reasons people had to go to Jerusalem to worship was because there was only one person who was granted access to God, and that is the high priest. And even then, the high priest could only have access to God on one day per year, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. On that day of the year, the high priest would enter into the Holy of Holies. He alone was permitted to enter into the Holy of Holies, standing before the Ark of the Covenant. Even the best of the best of the best of the high priests stood condemned before the contents of the Ark of the Covenant. Within the, within the, the Ark of the Covenant, you would find the Ten Commandments. And so God instructed that something had to be placed between the priest, no matter how good he was, no matter how holy, how righteous he might have seemed, he fell short of the contents of the Ten Commandments. And so God instructed that something had to be placed between the law of God, which condemned him, and him himself. And that something was called the mercy seat. The mercy seat. See, the mercy seat was to be pure gold, approximately 45 inches long by 9 inches wide. It was where the priest was to sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice for the sake of turning away God's holy and righteous wrath from him and from the people. In Exodus chapter 25, verse 21, God says this. He says, you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony which I will give to you. And then he assures the high priest in verse 22, there I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, between the two cherubim, which are upon the ark of the testimony, I will speak to you. Now, the significance of this is an understanding that the Greek word for mercy seat is often translated propitiation. The Greek word is helasterion, which is a word that gets translated in our Bibles as propitiation. In 1 John 4.10, John uses a form of this word when he writes this. He says, in this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the 
propitiation, the mercy seat for our sins, the thing that stood between us as condemned sinners, sinners who were condemned by just the Ten Commandments, and a holy God whose wrath burns against sin. Jesus is the one who stands between God's wrath and us as sinners, turning his wrath away from us. Like the Jews, we cannot come before God to worship, to pray, to do anything without a mercy seat, without something, without someone to stand as a mediator between us and God. And what God requires, God provides. That is always the way God works. Whatever he requires, he alone is able to provide. He sent the Lord Jesus Christ, his only son, to stand between God's holy law, which would only condemn us, and all who will repent and believe in Jesus Christ. Nobody could come before God without a mercy seat, without a propitiation. And now God has provided a mercy seat which took the wrath of God and turned it away from us. This Samaritan woman who had not been looking for grace, she had not been seeking God, she had no idea that she was lost, she had been trying to evade a spiritual discussion at all because she was completely lost. She's now found. She's now found. She she has her answer. There's no reason for her to postpone her decision. She realizes that the Messiah had come. Jesus will say say in uh, chapter 6, verse 37, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. And this woman, this woman, she was among those given to Christ by the Father. And so her eyes are open. Her heart is, is, is full. The eyes of her heart can see. Even though she might not have had the fullest understanding of Jesus yet, she knows enough. She knows who he is. She, she may only have a slight understanding of Jesus, but it is enough. God's grace has worked a miracle in her, and so for the first time in her life, she truly desires fellowship with God. And now she can have fellowship with God through the mercy seat. Through the propitiation provided by God in Christ Jesus. Through faith in the Messiah, in the Anointed One. As one person wrote, quote, No sooner do we think of Christ with the least true desire after him, but he is presently with us. End quote. Friends, we have to understand that all who repent and place saving faith in Jesus Christ alone as our, as our mercy seat, as, as Messiah, as the great I am, he will not cast you out. He will never let you go. He will save you. He will sanctify you, setting you apart. He will never let go of you. He will transform you. He will change you from being a rebel to being a true worshiper, from being an insurrectionist to being one who is eager to willfully confess that he is Lord, willfully eager to bow before him, 
confessing that he alone is Lord, that his is the name above all names, and that he alone is worthy of our devotion and our worship. But friends, just like with the Samaritan woman, he'll also, he'll also turn you into someone who not only st- understands that the world needs to hear about this person, this Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, but he'll also change you into someone who understands the urgency of obeying him and evangelizing. Someone who desires to obey his instruction to go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that Christ has commanded us. And all with the hope, all with the promise, all with the certainty that this one who stood before this woman at the well, the Lord Jesus Christ, is with us until the end of the age. Let's pray. Our most gracious Father, we thank you that you are fully revealed in Jesus Christ. We thank you for the understanding that he is Jehovah God incarnate. That he is one with the Father, equal to the Father. Thank you, Lord, for the work that you accomplished. Thank you for the clarity of these words and for giving us an understanding of what, what they mean, who Jesus was claiming to be. We do pray for the day to come when every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord, that his is the name above all names. But we pray, Lord, that before before that day, that many would come to faith in Christ, that their knee would not be bent against their will, but with their will, that their tongue would not confess begrudgingly, but eagerly, that Christ is Lord. We pray, Lord, for courage to be obedient to what you have commanded in going forth and preaching the gospel sharing Jesus with those who are lost in the darkness. We pray, Lord, that you would give us courage and wisdom, the wisdom to leave the results in your hands, the courage to be faithful until the end, knowing that Christ will be with us until the end of the age. We thank you for these things and pray for these things. In the name of the one who sent us, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. We'll continue with preparation for the Lord's Supper. Um, we'll start with a call to confession, which comes from 1 John chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, which says, If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. So let us confess in the silence of our hearts our sins before God, and I will close us with a prayer of confession and an assurance of pardon.
Our Father, Your Word tells us that if we have fellowship with You and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. And all we can do is confess in the silence of our hearts that we don't walk in the light perfectly. That sometimes we walk in the darkness. Sometimes we choose to walk in the darkness. And so it's possible for this verse, for your word, to fill us with fear as we realize that there are still sinful tendencies in us when we realize that, that we might sometimes walk in the light, but we sometimes walk in the dark. But all we can plead is the blood of Christ who did walk perfectly in the light, who did what we didn't do. He fulfilled every demand of the law. And so we plead his blood and we point to his obedience the fact that he obeyed perfectly, that he walked in the light perfectly. And we ask for the grace, the grace that's only found in him, the forgiveness that's only found in him to stand before you, to walk in the light with you. Father, our desire, our desire is to walk in the light. And so we thank you for the grace that's found in Jesus who did walk in the light, our substitute, our propitiation, our mercy seat. And we plead his righteousness. And we remember what your word tells us, that his, he was crushed for us. That you crushed him on our behalf as you laid our sins on him. And you transferred to us his perfect righteousness. So we thank you for that. We praise your name for that. That we are justified not by our own works, not by our own ability to walk perfectly in the light, but by Christ's merit alone. Thank you for that. Teach us to look to him. Teach us to grow in his likeness. Teach us to imitate him. That he would be glorified in our lives. In his name we pray. Amen. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcasts.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.